In the early verses of this chapter, we find that the time had finally come for David to be recognized by the entire nation of Israel to be king and head over the nation. So much had transpired since the day that Samuel arrived to his home in Bethlehem many, many years before and anointed him to be king. David has now risen to the throne and the word of the Lord was fulfilled. After this account, the narrative turns to those who in many ways helped David make it happen or maybe put in a better way that the Lord raised up to help his anointed in his journey toward the throne. Beginning in verse 10, we have before us the account of David's mighty men. And beginning in verse 15, we find the story of the three mightiest. Don't let it slide by without notice. There is a definite connection between the greatness of David and the greatness of his mighty men. In his service. Consider the transition beginning in verse 9. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So we find the account of David's mighty men. Beginning in verse 15, we're told about something done by the mightiest of these men, the mightiest of this group. It's the passage that we have read tonight that I would like to consider this evening. What do we see in these verses from verse 15 down to verse 19? Well, we see three things. We see the desire of David. We see the desire of David. He desired to be refreshed, and that was seen in the desire for water, which is in verse 17. This refreshment was experienced in earlier days because David was from Bethlehem. With that in mind, specifically water from the well, which was by the gate. It was a specific well in a specific location that came to David's mind as he was desiring for this water. The gate, it's, it's interesting to note, is the place where the elders often gathered. The elders of the city often gathered at the gate. So you see the desire of David in, in all of those ways. Then the second thing you see in this passage is the zeal of the mighty men. The zeal of the mighty men. It says in verse 18 that they broke through. They broke through the army, the host of the Philistines. It wasn't just a few guards that they had to overcome. It specifically says that they broke through the army of the Philistines. Then these mighty men, it says that they drew water. Then it also says that they took it. They took it with them. And then the last thing that we see from these mighty men is that they brought it to the king. So you have the, the desire of David and the zeal of the mighty men. But then... In verse 18, you have the approval of the king. The king presented this water to the Lord as an offering to the Lord. The king was singled out above everyone else. It was for the king that this great deed was done. And then the last thing we see of the approval of the king is that great honor was bestowed upon this this group of men 
because they're known after this event, they're known as the three mightiest. Now, Edward Taylor, in his book upon the types of the Old Testament, defines a type as a certain thing standing with a sacred impression, standing or set upon it by God to signify some good to come as Christ or the gospel concerns in this life. What Taylor's saying is that the Old Testament scriptures are filled with accounts and, and stories of events that took place in the lives of men and women and in the offices that were raised up uh, that are intended to show us something concerning not just the work of Christ, but also the work of the gospel as it applies in this life. And we would have to admit and consider as we go through the Old Testament that of all the types that are used by the Lord in the Old Testament, not just to give us stories that we can tell our children at bedtime, and not just that we have accounts of the history of the nation of Israel. No, I, I, I believe Taylor is right by saying that these accounts are given with a sacred impression set upon it by God to signify something. It isn't just a story to tell us about David's mighty men in this passage. I believe we have before us something that we can learn about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe David is one of the most obvious and glorious types of Christ in all of the scriptures. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, we read, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. This is obviously referring to someone other than King David. Since David died long before Ezekiel was even in exile. Yet the prophet is looking forward to a day when David shall be king. This David shall be prince over the saints of God forever. Obviously, this is nothing less than a prophecy concerning David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was understood that Christ would be the son of David. Even the enemies of the Lord knew this. However, what they missed was that the one who was born of Mary would be none other than Emmanuel, God with us. God manifested in the flesh. In Matthew chapter 22 Beginning in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord, that's Jehovah, said unto my Lord, my master, my Adonai, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any questions anymore. The ultimate fulfillment to the prophecy of the everlasting rule of David is found in the person 
and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was David's son as well as David's Lord. David is only a picture or a type of the greater David who would come, of whom it is said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this evening I want to lift this passage out of its immediate context and I want to carry us beyond the life and the experience of King David and I want to focus upon David's greater son whose life and work are foreshadowed for us in this wonderful passage of Scripture that we have in First Chronicles chapter 11. And so the three things that we said we saw in this passage concerning the life of David and his, the, the account that's given is the desire of David, the zeal of the mighty men, and the approval of the king. This evening I want to take those thoughts and apply them to the work of Christ. And the first thing I want to see from this passage, that in type fashion... I want to see the desire of Christ, not the desire of David, but the desire of Christ as it's set before us in this typical fashion. The first thing we see from this passage is that Christ desires fellowship and closeness with his people. Look at verse 17. And David longed and said, oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. What was it about the water that was at the gate? Well, the gate of the city was where the elders often met to discuss civil matters, different things that, that pertained to the, to the city and to the community, and as well as making official decisions. That, that all took place at the gate. And it wasn't just the gate at Bethlehem. This was the, the tradition. This was the custom in those days that all the elders met and made decisions that were binding upon the city or that had to do with the future of the city, they made those decisions at the gate. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 23, in talking about the, the woman, uh, we read, Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Then Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, Unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And then from that point, they performed the transaction of Ruth being redeemed by Boaz. An official transaction. Wanted it to be known among the inhabitants of the city. Took place with the elders at the gate. And so this was a place where the elders would meet. And where they would commune and they would talk and official business was done. It's interesting that the elders in the church today are required to be apt to teach. It's one of the requirements for an elder that they be apt to teach. And I'm sure this was true in the day of David as well. Jesse would have no doubt been an elder in the city of Bethlehem. He was the grandson of Boaz, who was said to be the mighty man of wealth who lived in Bethlehem. The whole account of the story of Ruth takes place in Bethlehem. Everything that takes place takes place in Bethlehem. And so this is the same area 
And, and this, these are the descendants of Boaz that we're talking about. So there's no doubt that Jesse would have been one of the elders that would have sat in the gate in Bethlehem. And this would have been one of the many places where David, no doubt, would have heard of Christ and the great gospel promises made to the nation. He, he may have even been there with his father fetching water himself for some of the elders that sat as they communed and as they did their business and as they spoke concerning the promises that the Lord had given to his people. He may have been the one so eager to get back to hear what the elders were saying concerning what the Lord will do for the nation. He quick ran and filled up, filled up the ladle and brought it back and, and gave it to the men to drink. And then he would sit down and listen. Something to that effect. There was something about the water from the well which was at the gate that was upon the mind of David as he was in exile. The thrill of the promises was still fresh in the mind of David so many years ago. Who could have imagined all that transpired since then? Young David keeping the flock, engaging the lion and the bear, being sent forth by the, by the, uh, being sent for by the servants uh, at the command of his father one day that seemed to be at the start just like another, but yet ended with the oil of God upon his head, anointed to be king over the nation. The day he heard the mocking of that uncircumcised Philistine, barely enduring the cursing laid upon the armies of the living God, and then running with zeal to end the life of the giant and rally the army of Israel against their enemies. It's with gladness that he remembers the fellowship that he had with the godly men of Bethlehem. But those days are gone. The fellowship has been broken. The heart of the king longs for those times once again, times of fellowship with men. Oh, that I would know once again the glorious days of sweet communion around the refreshing water of Bethlehem's gate. Our Savior also can remember those times of sweet communion with His people. It's not something that the Lord soon forgets. We considered the other night in, in the prayer time the topic of fellowship, and we emphasized how that the Lord takes notice and He remembers the fellowship that we have one with another, as well as the fellowship that we have with him. Malachi chapter 3, we considered this verse the other night. Verses 16 and 17, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. The Lord hearkened. He's listening for the conversation among those that fear his name. And it says, and then he heard it. Good gospel fellowship never gets past the ear of Christ. He notices it. He takes notice of it. And a book of remembrance was written before him. In his presence, at his side as it were. The Lord doesn't forget us when we attempt to not forget him. And then the promises are ours. Look at all the glorious things the Lord desires to do to those that fellowship and that think upon his name. I say Christ desires fellowship. He desires closeness with his people as it's pictured here in the desire and the heart of David. But then it happened, secondly, it happened before in better days. This is all under the desire of Christ. The desire of Christ. It happened before in better days. David knew the former blessings and longed for those days 
It's hard for us to imagine, but Christ also longs for those days where he's near to his people once again. It's not always the case that he's close to his people. It's not always the case that his people are close to him. And it affects the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then the verse that follows. It's, it's so often misquoted. It's applied to the gospel entreaty for sinners to come to Christ. When preachers often say, Christ stands at the door and he knocks, and he wants you to come to faith. That, that verse is completely taken out of context. The context is in this letter to the Laodiceans who have broken the heart of their Savior because they have turned away from Him and they have no need of Him. He follows that, that passage that we just read in verse 20 by saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him. And he with me. He's not applying that verse in the context of the unsaved. He's applying that context to the, to the, to the saint who has broken off fellowship. And Christ is standing at the door knocking. The, 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 the zeal and the desire is seen in the heart of Christ by knocking, wanting fellowship with his people. And he says, I'll come into him, I'll sup with him, I'll commune with him. We'll fellowship once again. Oh, I was like this in former days. And you can see the, the, the broken heart that was the Savior's in Revelation chapter 3. We are often found in the place of the Ephesian church as well, having left our first love. Oh, that the Lord himself, who stands at the door and knocks, would restore that fellowship with his people once again. He longs for the kind of fellowship that he has had with his people in former days, the same way that King David desired it as well. So Christ desires fellowship and closeness with his people. It happened in better days, and then specifically among the men. We find in the passage, And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate, the place where the men met. The place where the men who were the leaders of the city, the, the fellowship that David would have. Oh, nothing thrills the hearts of, of God's people as well as the Savior. As seeing men who are being led by the power of the Holy Ghost. Expounding the gospel and the, the glories of Christ. I say we desire that. We pray for that. It's something that, that we need to pray for in this congregation. It's something that we prayed for during the 24-hour prayer meeting. It's, it's not the way 
the church should be. I prayed specifically during that that time of prayer. I sat in that back corner and in the prayer, I prayed to the Lord and I said, I am sitting in the sanctuary of a congregation that has no minister. Lord, do what you have promised in giving us shepherds. We know that it's connected to his work. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, but ever, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. This is connected to Christ's work. Christ has given gifts to men. Connected to his finished work. And you read down into verse 11, and he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and so on. That passage tells me that because Christ was successful in his work of redemption, and because he went back to be seated at God's right hand, and God has has blessed him and given him these gifts, he then in turn gives these gifts to the church. And one of those gifts is the pastor-teacher. When we live and function in church life, and there's a failure among the men, whether it's the men who stand in the pulpit or the fact that the pulpit has no man. It breaks the heart of Christ. David longed to be in that place, to hear men standing in the gap, reminding God's people of the promises, reminding them of what Christ will do. David longed for those times. And we can relate to that. We can relate to those, that desire that we have as God's people that when we're sitting under the preaching of the word of God and we know that the spirit of God is upon a man to give us a word. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great place to be when you know that the Lord is in the midst. It isn't just us as the people of God that notice when there's a failure among the men. Oh, David, David noticed it in his day. And he longed for those days when, when the men were men indeed in the work of the Lord. And that they were bearing the burden of the work of the Lord. Oh, we live in a day when, when there's a shortage of men. Christ takes notice of that the same way David did. Oh, it happened before in better days. This is the desire that Christ has. But then we move on secondly to consider only those willing to decrease self And seek the will of God in prayer. Have the strength and power to do the will of Christ. A few things under this point. We need to humble ourselves first. And seek Christ in the secret place. To seek Christ in the secret place. Now where was the king? He was in a different place than these men were. Since we're told in verse 15 that they had to go find him. Now three of the 30 captains went down to the rock, to David, into the cave of Adullam. What does this tell us about fellowship with Christ? First of all, he's often not to be found where we are. Don't expect to know fellowship with Christ if we're rubbing elbows with the ungodly in places where Christ is not. This is the meaning of the word holy. When we talk about something being holy, what do we mean? Does it mean sanctimonious and and pompous? No. What we mean is the biblical term. It simply means to be set apart. To be set apart for a holy use. Fellowship with Christ 
can only be had when we are willing to be set apart from the rest of the world. That we leave off where we are and we go and we find the king and we commune with the king and we find out what the will of the king is. He's often not to be found where we are. But the second thing is he can only be found in the secret place where no eyes can see him. Where was he? Well, he was at the rock, yes, but he was specifically in the cave of Adullam. He was in the cave. This tells us something of the place of prayer, does it not? The place where the the Lord is hidden from our physical eyes, but yet it's still the place where the king is to be found. It's only when the saints seek the Lord and wait upon the Lord in the secret place that the power of Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Ghost can be known. That's what this passage is telling us. The king is in the cave. For the situation that to be, to be remedied, the three mightiest went down and they found where the king was and he was in the secret place. In Acts chapter 2, which obviously follows the command given to the apostles to remain in prayer until they be endued with power from on high, we read in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. What were they doing? They were praying. They were fulfilling the command given to them by the Lord before He ascended into heaven. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto Him cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Ah, the outpouring of the Spirit of God as they were seeking the face of the king in the secret place. Fulfilling the command that he left with them to pray, to pray, seek my face. What was it that they were doing? They were seeking the king where he could not be seen to find out what the will of the king was. That is exactly, that is a a dead-on type and picture for us of the place of prayer. The second thing, not just to humble ourselves and seek Christ in the secret place, but we need to break through the strong opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because in verse 18, it says, After they met with the Lord and heard His desire and His will, it says, The three break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. There's always resistance. There's always resistance that will stand between you and doing what you now know to be the will of the king. You, get, you understand what God's will is in the place of prayer. You receive that word from the Lord and you know what the king wants you to do. And then when you try to go about accomplishing the will of the king, you will always face resistance in the accomplishment of his will. The... Resistance was seen in the army of the Philistines, also called by Jonathan as these uncircumcised in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. The garrison of the uncircumcised. Was this just a 
a slang, crude way to talk about the enemies of Israel, kind of like how we would have a, a slang term to talk about enemies of our country. Is, is that what this is? The, these, these uncircumcised, almost like he's, he's shooting off his mouth. Is that what this is? No, there, there's a reason why Jonathan called the Philistines the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised, they knew nothing of the covenant and of the promises and of the blessings of the Lord. They're an army and they are mighty. But they must be overcome to know the blessing of the king. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then later in the book, chapter 5, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So we need to break through the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The third thing is we need to find the promises of God contained in his word once again. Verse 18, And the three break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. It's not enough just to break through the army of the uncircumcised and to shake the ungodly from their influence and and resistance to the work of Christ. But we need to find once again the promises that have been given to us contained in his word. The refreshing view of Christ and of the gospel. No doubt the testimony of the people of God that it was worth the battle to, to, to remember the promises that were given by the Lord. Isaiah chapter 12. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And how is that described in the next verse? Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Such a short chapter in the book of Isaiah, but oh, just so chock full of gospel reminders and the blessings of the gospel and how is it described right in the middle of the chapter it's described with joy drawing out of the wells of salvation this water the water is the gospel promise and all that the lord has done for us so it isn't enough that we just humble ourselves and see christ in the private in the in the in the hidden place and it isn't enough to to break through the resistance of the world the flesh and the devil but we need to be reminded of the promises contained in the word of God. The fourth thing is we need to claim them for ourselves. It's not enough just to find those promises or to be reminded of those promises, but you have to claim them for yourself because the passage tells us in verse 18, they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and they took it. They took it. The gospel promises cannot be kept from the saint whose faith is resting secure in Christ. They took it 
and they were not going to be deprived of the blessing that was drawn from the well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Ah, the promises. The older I get, the more glorious the promises are. To simply read in the scriptures that God has said, I will do this, and it's connected to the work of Christ. That's the refreshment. That's that's the blessing that's drawn from the wells of salvation. We need to claim those promises for ourselves. Let us hold fast our profession without wavering. Profession of our faith without wavering. And then we need to rehearse them once again in the years of Christ. Not just humbling ourselves and seeking Christ. Not just breaking through the the hindrances and the, the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And not just finding the promises and claiming them for ourselves. But then we need to rehearse them once again in the ears of Christ himself. Verse 18, it says, And they took it and they brought it to David. What, what blessed them in the, in the procuring of the water. They took it and they brought it back to the king. Prayer is simply bringing back to the attention of the king the covenant promises as they're found in the gospel. That's what prayer is. When we pray to the Lord, we are bringing God's word back to him. There is no better ground to pray upon than praying upon the grounds of the promises that are given to us in the gospel. The Lord has covenanted to give us those promises. He has has engaged himself to fulfill those very promises to us. There's no safer ground upon which we can pray than praying upon the ground of the promises that we have received in the gospel. Isn't that what Daniel did when he was reading Jeremiah? Right? He was reading Jremiah and he found out that the, the certain amount of time that was going to transpire before Israel would be brought back and it led him to prayer. The 70 years, right? He started to pray. And on the basis of that, he was praying that the Lord would, would once again revive his people. Isn't that what Elijah did? When he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain? Elijah read in the scriptures that if Israel turned away from serving the Lord, he would withhold the rain. So what does Elijah do? On the basis of that promise that the Lord would do that, he comes to the Lord and he prays, Lord, withhold the rain. And that's exactly what takes place. And then when when does it start raining again? When the fire falls upon the sacrifice and the people cry out, the Lord, he is the God. Then the rain comes. Is that, is, that, is that mighty prayer? Of course it's mighty prayer. But what's the, what's the source of such praying? The source is the word of God. The promises. To take what we draw from the well and bring it back to the king. That's what we're commanded to do. So we see only those who are willing to decrease self And seek the will of God in prayer, have the strength and power to do the will of Christ. And then the last thing 
that we see from this passage is when his people do his will, the approval of Christ will be visibly seen. Visibly seen. Three things. First of all, Christ will show what we have done to the Father. He will show it to the Father. Verse 18, but David would not drink of it, but poured it out unto the Lord. David took what these men had had taken from the well and brought back to him. David, the great king, took that and showed it to the Lord. Oh, that's what Christ does. Christ will will draw the eyes of the Father to his people and say, "They they they have brought back our promises. Christ takes notice of that, and the Father takes notice of that. So Christ will show what we have done to the Father. The second thing is Christ will be glorified. Verse 19, and said, My God forbid me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? For with the jeopardy of their lives they brought it. Why did they do this? They did it for me. They did it for me. Oh, the importance of Christ. The focus of Christ. God's people must have as their focus the honor and the glory of Christ. These mighties, these mighties, we don't, we don't know exactly who they were. And I think if this passage has been given to us to be set with this, this divine set and stamp of approval upon it to show the work of Christ, I think there's a reason for that. That the men, these specific men, their names aren't mentioned, in this passage, just the three mighties. Who receives the glory? It's David. Everyone around would have, would have looked at the king and said, I don't know a lot of what's going on, but I know this much. That must be some man. That these men had to fight through the army and draw out the water and they bring it back to him. I don't know about these men, but I know something about that man that they did it for. The fact that they would do such a thing speaks volumes of David. They loved David. They would be willing to offer up their lives just to see his desire for a a, a cup of water from the well by the gate in the city where he grew up to see that accomplished. All the glory and all the focus is on David. It's all on David. And I say Christ is the greater David. Anything that we draw from the well of salvation and bring back to the Lord in prayer, any desire and and prayer that we bring to God must always be for the glory of Christ. It must be. Not just that we have a pastor here installed to take the church forward. Not just that the the holes that are in the church be plugged and that that the church would go forward. Ultimately, everything you pray, whether it's for the man or the future of the work, whatever it may be, it must be for the glory of Christ. He is the only one that receives the glory here. And this is is the, the praise and the glory of the mighties. The men who could receive focus. You know, some men are are gifted speakers. Some men are gifted preachers. But they are never the focus. They should never be the focus 
in the work of Christ. The King. The one we labor for. The one who we struggle and battle and fight the enemy for and bring back the promises for. He's the one who receives the glory. So Christ will show what we've done to the Father. Christ will be glorified. And then the last thing, the church will be blessed. The church will be blessed. These things, the last words of the, of the passage. These things did these three mightiest. These things did these three mightiest. The more mighty men that the church possesses, the more mighty men are drawn into service. Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 4. Draw me. Draw me, and we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Oh, when the Lord raises up mighties for the glory of Christ, there's nothing quite like being able to be in the, in the company of the, of the mighty men. You ever been around? You ever been around someone who has... A testimony of years of being used for the Lord. You ever been around someone like that? It, it, it's, it's unique. It's, it, there's a, it's an experience that it's unlike anything else. The Lord does have in his work the mighties. He does for his glory. And nothing thrills the hearts of those who desire to bring glory to the king. Nothing thrills their hearts more than to be around the mighties. Because the mighties are only concerned about doing the will of the king. That's it. So much so that they're willing to die to get him a cup of water. Right? That's how set on the glory of Christ the mighties are. Ah, oh, pray that the Lord... Pray that the Lord, for his own glory, for the furtherance of the message and the preaching of the gospel, pray that the Lord will raise up the mighties. We need a generation of mighties raised up in our day that will draw the hearts and the affections of the people unto the king. And so I trust that as we've considered these thoughts this evening, Risking all for the king. I trust that the Lord will speak to us and show us a sight of the real active king upon his throne, the greater David. And that we'll even follow something of what these mighties did in their day to bring honor to the king. And we'll do the same in our day to bring honor to our Savior, Jesus Christ. I trust that the Lord will take these thoughts and write them upon our hearts for his name's sake. We'll close our service this evening by singing hymn number, and the hymn number is not in there. It just says, God will take care of you. So, 609, okay. Hymn number 609. My eyes are not good, so I put my glasses on assuming I just didn't see the number, and the number wasn't there. So hymn number 609, and we will stand together as we sing all the verses, God will take care of you. <laughs>